0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We're looking at Mark chapter 8. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. I think 492 is the page number, I think. Mark eight twenty-two to 33. The topic of our sermon this morning is spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. That, that is, that there is this idea that's presented to us in the Scriptures that there are certain spiritual truths that some people see and others don't. In fact, I would say that others can't see. Um, a, a kind of good illustration of this, a little more specifically, would be like color blindness. There, there is a uh, condition called protanopia where a person can't see red There's a condition called deuteranopia, where a person can't see green. So these people, they they live their lives normally. They go about their lives regularly. You wouldn't really know anything. It doesn't really hinder much of what they do normally, but they're blind to certain colors in their lives. And spiritually, it's, it's very similar. There are people who live relatively normal lives. They have physical sight. They get along in life just fine. They can read books and get degrees and They can read signs on the street and drive and get around. They can read recipes and cook meals. I mean, their sight physically is fine, but spiritually, they're blind. Their eyes are closed to certain truths. Uh, Another illustration of this might be an experience that perhaps you've had. I know I've had this where I was asked to read a classic work of classic literature, maybe in high school, Great Gatsby or something, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird. And I remember reading it when I was 12, and I got nothing out of it. Meant nothing to me, and then I read the books like 25, 30 years later, and all of a sudden I'm seeing new things in the books I never saw before. It's like my eyes were opened. And this is exactly what Paul talks about here in the Scriptures when he talks about this condition of spiritual blindness. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, and in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. When you become a Christian, one of the great blessings of being a Christian is that your eyes are opened. You used to be blind, but now you see. Remember that great line, an amazing grace? I was blind, but now I see. That's the cry of joy and thankfulness of every Christian. And so that's what our passage deals with here today, this condition of spiritual blindness. We're working our way through the book of Mark here at New Life, this series called The Servant King. We're picking up where we left off last week. Here in chapter 8, last week we looked at the feeding of the 4,000. And this week, starting at verse 22, what we see is Jesus meeting a a blind man. And after this incident, what we're going to see is this wonderful spiritual process whereby eyes are open to see wonderful truths. In God's word about the gospel. So that's what this passage is about. So if you're able to stand, please do so. Let me read Mark 8, 22 to 33. Mark 8, 22 to 33. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He asked His disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered Him, you are the Christ. And He strictly charged them to tell no one about Him. And He began to teach them Lord God, we call out to you and ask, give us sight, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, let's look at three things here in this passage. I think this um, flows rather logically. Before I studied this passage, I had no idea what the connection was between this blind man and The passage that follows as Jesus is talking with Peter and the disciples, but I think the Lord gave me eyes to see, and so I can see how these relate together really well. I think it's very exciting to see how God inspires His Word to be written. So, the first thing that I want to show you here today is that Jesus gives us eyes to see, okay? That's the first point. Jesus is the one who gives us eyes to see. So, let's look at the passage, verse 22. It begins, and we see that they Um, came to this place called Bethsaida, that actually is the hometown of uh, Peter, also Andrew and Philip. And as they reach Bethsaida, some people bring to Jesus this blind man, and they beg him to, to touch him. And so, Jesus' response to that is to go out of the village. It says in verse 23, And it's not explained to us why he leads him out. We might surmise maybe it was because Jesus didn't want to be interrupted by the clamor of the people and activity in the village. And so he wants to go to a more private location where he can um, show grace to this blind man. And so the story continues here. What do we see Jesus do? Well, it gets a little weird maybe at this point in verse 23 because... Um, what Jesus does is He spits in His eyes. (laughs) Okay, It doesn't say He spit in His hand and put His hand on His eyes. It does say He laid His hands on him next, but Jesus just spit in His eyes. (laughs) And and then He laid His hands on him. Um, Why is Jesus spitting in this man's eyes, touching him like this? You know, this is one of those passages where this, this is not explained to us, It was believed that saliva had a certain kind of cleansing property in it, so that might have played into this. There were other people who claimed to be healers at the time who would use their spit to heal people. Maybe that has something to do with it. We don't actually know. It could also be that Jesus is simply being sensitive to this man. He knows that this is a blind man, a man who has been relying on touch to make his way in the world. And so Jesus now is going to speak his language by using his own touch, taking him by his hand, using his saliva and his hands on the eyes to communicate to this man that Jesus is about to do something really big in his life. So, what happens? Well, after Jesus lays his hands on this man, verse 23, Jesus has a question takes the blind, blind, blind man by the hand, leads him out of the village. When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asks him, do you see anything? And the man looks up and he says, I, I see men and they look like trees walking. Now, wh- why would he say that? I, I think that the reason is because the man's sight is beginning to be restored here, but it's not fully restored. And so, his eyes are still kind of misty and cloudy, and so he doesn't see things fully and completely. It might be like if you were uh, at home at night and it was a real foggy night and the moon wasn't up and you looked outside your window and you might see somebody walking down the street. It might look a little bit like a tree, actually. You just see this kind of column-like figure, kind of moving through the night. That's what this man sees. We don't know if he was born blind or became blind later. He's identifying trees. He seems to know what a tree looks like, so maybe he was born with sight and became blind later. Uh, We don't know, but the, the point here is that he's not seeing things fully. He's not seeing things completely. There's the beginning of sight, but not the fullness of sight, and so The passage goes on in verse 25 to tell us that Jesus laid His hands on the man again, and on this occasion He opened His eyes and His sight was restored and He saw everything clearly. And then Jesus goes on and He says, don't even enter the village, likely because Jesus is trying to avoid giving the impression that He is this miracle worker. He doesn't want people coming to Him just to get their health problems fixed. He wants people to come to him for salvation, first and foremost. So he doesn't want the wrong impression to be given. So he tells the man, go home, don't enter the village. So what are we to make of this kind of strange story? And I think here's what we're to make of it. This is indeed a historical event. This really happened um, Jesus really did meet a blind man, spit in his eyes, put his hands on his eyes, and gave the man sight in a miraculous healing of sight. That really happened, and yet I think Mark is placing this story right here in his gospel to teach a spiritual lesson. This story is not in any of the other gospels, it's only in this gospel. It's like Mark has a particular intent in placing this story here. To teach a spiritual lesson. I'm not spiritualizing the text here. I'm not saying the physical healing didn't take place. That's not what I'm saying. Physical healing took place, but it's for a spiritual purpose. And and here's how I I know this because of the way this is placed. Remember last week, we looked at the feeding of the 4,000, right? The feeding of the 4,000. You might remember this would have been several weeks ago. I think it was before the Advent series, (coughs) actually, so back in November maybe we saw the healing of the deaf man at the end of chapter 7. So you got the feeding of the 4,000 right before the feeding of the 4,000 is the healing of the deaf man, and then right after the feeding of the 4,000, we have a healing of a blind man. Now, is that a random accidental choice on Mark's part, or might he have something in mind? And I think he does have something in mind, because if you look at the very end of the feeding of the 4,000, when Jesus and His disciples are in the boat together... And there are the disciples wondering how in the world they're going to get bread when they just saw Jesus feed 4,000 people, and here's the, the bread of life sitting in the boat with them, right? Remember that? And Jesus asked them in Mark 8, 17 and 18, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? That question is placed right in between the healing of a deaf man and the healing of a blind man. Jesus really did heal a deaf man. He really did heal heal a blind man. But Jesus is trying to teach his disciples a spiritual lesson through the physical miracles. And that's what Mark is trying to get through to us also by writing his gospel in this particular way. Jesus' question here has to do with spiritual realities. Don't don't you hear, don't you see who I am? I've been teaching you and doing these miracles and in your presence all this time, and you're so worried about the circumstances of your life, don't you understand? I'm the one who satisfies the longings of your soul. They didn't get that. They were blind to that. And what Jesus is, is seeking to do here is bring sight to them. And so, that's why these stories are, are here. And so, I think what we can take from this, a couple principles, And the first is is simply this, and that is, to be a Christian, your eyes must be opened. God has to supernaturally give you sight to be a Christian, or, or you will not get it. It doesn't matter how smart you are, or how much you study, or how reasonable or logical you are. You can have a PhD in astrophysics, you can have an IQ of 160, and you can be spiritually blind. You can miss things that are true, that God reveals to us in His Word. Now, that might sound like a little bit of a helpless situation. What are you saying, you might be thinking, if you're not a Christian? Do I have any hope at all? Well, what did these people do who brought the blind man to Jesus? If you go back to verse 22, it says, They begged Him to touch Him. They begged Jesus, give Him sight. And you can do that too. You can beg Jesus to give you sight. You can't open your eyes on yourself. You can't figure it out on your own. This is a spiritual thing. This is a work of God we're talking about here, not a work of man. It's a work of God, but you can call on God to do it. So ask Him to open your eyes and to show you the glory of the gospel. So to become a Christian, your eyes must be open. But the second thing to say is that um, to grow as a Christian, your eyes must continue to be open. See, that, that's the point here. The, the, the man's sight is partially restored, but not fully restored. And so, when you become a Christian, you, you don't get it all at once. Your growth from then on is gradual and slow. It's a, it's a progression, and your sight will get clearer over time. But nobody gets it all to begin with. We're all in progress and we all need further illumination to understand the things that are taught to us in the Word about God's holiness. I mean, that's just not something you get when you first hear it. Or the relationship between God's sovereignty and the presence of evil and suffering in this world. I mean, that requires illumination by the Spirit of God. To understand the severity of your sin, how much your sin offends God, that's got to come from above, as well as an understanding of how deep and wide and long and high is the love of God for you. That also requires further illumination, which is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. He prays, he says, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. I think I just prayed that for one of the new members. So we're asking for, that's why every single Sunday when I stand before I, before I preach, I, I pray every single time, Lord, open the eyes of our hearts. Give us spiritual understanding And that's a prayer that all Christians should be praying on some regular basis. God, help me to see. Help me to see where I need to repent. Help me to see my need for growth. Help me to see my blind spots. Help me to see what I have contributed to this relational problem. Open my eyes to this. Give me wisdom and insight into your Scripture. Help me to understand this passage that just seems like nonsense to me. Give me an understanding of the glory and the beauty and the majesty of your gospel that my heart might be filled with joy and gratefulness. God, open my eyes. Make that a prayer regularly. You need your eyes open to become a Christian, you need your eyes opened to grow as a Christian and it all comes from Jesus, from God. So that's, that's the first thing. Now, the second thing is getting a little more detailed about what it is that God reveals to us. So the second thing is Jesus gives us eyes to see who He is, and that's what happens in verses 27 to 30. So the story moves on, and, and this is what Mark is now showing us. He, he's showing us an example of eyes being opened, Peter and the disciples are with Jesus. Verse 27, they travel to the villages of Caesarea Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, Jesus has a question for the disciples. End of verse 27, who do people say that I am? And so, it's like Jesus is kind of conducting a popular opinion poll here. You know, He wants to know what, what is the word on the street? What are people saying out there? Who do they say that I am? And so they give the answer in verse 28, and they say, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. So all of these people would have been deceased at this time. You might remember John the Baptist's head has been uh, removed, so he is deceased as well. And so what people are saying is that what Jesus is, is like a The the coming back of one of these great biblical figures. In other words, they're all recognizing that there is something really special about Jesus. The people are saying, yeah, he's kind of like Elijah. He's like John the Baptist. So they, they acknowledge that Jesus is no ordinary God. Jesus is important. He is someone of supreme significance. They get that, but all of those answers are wrong. You know, it's possible to, to be wrong in who you think Jesus is. It's possible to get it wrong. This is what the people on the street are saying. I mean, you, you might see these surveys on the street where people ask who Jesus is. Oh, he's a great religious leader. Oh, he's a great teacher. Everybody's got their own ideas about who Jesus is. He was a great man, holy man. All of these might be true as far as they go, but we need to be very, very careful about allowing our convictions to be influenced by popular opinion. I mean, it's not easy to go against the grain, is it? It's not easy to be the only guy in the room who holds to one opinion when everybody else believes something different. And what the disciples are saying, all these people, they're saying all of these different things. This is what the word on the street is. Here's the popular view of who you are. The question is, are you going to be influenced by that? Are you going to adopt your view of Jesus based on what other people say? Have you ever heard of that fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes? You've probably heard about that. Um, it, uh, 1837 it came out, Hans Christian Andersen. And I hope it's not um, irreverent to put a picture of a naked person on the screen there, but that's, that's the king up front. But do you remember how the story goes? Here's the deal. It's the, 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 the emperor is ruling over a city, and these swindlers come to the city, and they say, you know, all the money you spend on clothes, it's very expensive. Here's what we can do for you. We can, we can put clothes on you that, um, that, that you have to be a certain you know, level of smartness to see. You know, the, the unsophisticated, dumb people out in the community, they, they, won't, they won't see it and they're, they're invisible, actually. These clothes are invisible. And so they go to work on the clothes, and, and they keep saying, you know, the, the incompetent people aren't going to get this, king. And so people start kind of following along. It's like, oh, yeah, wow, well, I want to be among the smart people. So, okay. And so the swindlers start kind of pretending to make these clothes, and then they pretend to put the clothes on the emperor. And then the emperor goes out in the city and marches down... The middle of the city, and there's all the people behind them just kind of going along with the the myth. They don't want to appear stupid. They don't want to appear incompetent. Oh, yeah, those clothes look beautiful, Emperor. It's just gorgeous. You look so good. That they're just going along with the popular opinion. And finally, in the fairy tale, a little kid just rises up and says, The emperor has no clothes. It's like, you know, children. Sometimes they just blurt out the truth. They just, they just tell it like it is, and, and that's what happens. And, and finally, kind of people realize, yeah, we've been duped. And the whole moral of the story is, be careful about getting caught up in the sway of popular opinion. You've got to think for yourself. You've got to think about Jesus in accordance with, this, with what the Scriptures tell us is true. And so that's how Jesus handles this. He, he moves on. First of all, He says, well, what does everybody else think? But then He targets the question to the disciples in verse 29, and he says, okay, that's what everybody else says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? This right here, friends, this is the turning point in the whole book of Mark. This, if this were a movie, this is when the, the, the soundtrack, the music would be welling up. This is when the camera would be coming in very slowly and it would just move in on Peter's face, and there would be a close up of Peter's face. How is he going to answer this question? Because all through the book of Mark, that's the question that has been being asked Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? And so the camera is focused in on Peter, and he says at the end of verse 29 You are the Christ you are the messiah you are the savior of sinners you are the son of god you are the king of kings you're the anointed one you're the one we've been waiting for you're the one who's going to make every wrong thing right and what we see here is that peter's eyes have been opened and he has sight and he sees who jesus is And if we look at Matthew's account, it's very interesting because Matthew adds something that Mark doesn't, but Matthew has an account of this same incident. And the way Matthew quotes Jesus is saying this, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's Peter, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's God who has to open the eyes, and God did open the eyes of Peter, and he got it, and he saw who Jesus is. And that's the question." for all of us to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? I mean, there's no more important question for you to answer in this life. Who do you say Jesus is? Are you going to give an answer that comes from your own conviction, or are you just going to tell us what your friends think, or what your parents think, or what your spouse thinks? It's very important for young people in particular, as we're brought up in Christian households, you know for young people sometimes they have to kind of get to a point where they can make a decision about what they think about Jesus, not just what their parents think about Jesus. Thank God for godly parents who teach the gospel in their households, but people have to get to a point where they think, what, what, what do I think of Jesus? I mean, Who is He to you? Is He just a moral example? Is He, is he just your teacher? Is He just a cosmic therapist who just makes you feel better when you're sad? All of those would widely miss the mark, although there might be a kernel of truth in all of them. Jesus is the Christ, the way and the truth and the life, the one mediator between man and God. And that's what Peter gets here by the grace of God. But we've got to go on to one other thing, and that is that Jesus gives us eyes to see what He has done as well. Because Peter's answer here is good, and it's true, and it's right, and we rejoice that he got it. But Peter's answer is incomplete. He is like the blind man who was beginning to see, but his sight was still kind of muddy and cloudy and confused. It's like Peter is seeing Jesus, like the man saw people like trees walking. There's a connection here just like the blind man he had a partial understanding peter also has a partial understanding it's less than the whole truth it's like if somebody said to you who's abraham lincoln and you said yeah he's an american politician it's like yeah that's true <laughs> but but you're missing quite a bit there you know abraham lincoln actually saved the union from falling apart and freed the slaves and gave his life i mean there is that too It's more than that, and that's what's happening here. It's like Peter gets the identity of Jesus, but he's missing the mission of Jesus. And so, this is what we see. Jesus goes on in verse 31 to explain what kind of Messiah He is. Peter has said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. question is, what kind of Messiah? Verse 31, Jesus says, here's the kind of Messiah I am. The Son of Man is going to go... Uh, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This is the Messiah that I am. I am a Messiah who has come to die. This is a Messiah who hasn't come to deal with all your physical enemies. Peter, I'm not the Messiah who's going to come and wipe out the Romans so that we can make Israel great again. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here to deal with your political enemies. I'm here to deal with your spiritual enemies. I'm here to deal with the problem of sin and death and Satan. I'm not coming here to make my enemies die. I'm coming here to die for my enemies. And Peter has no category for that. His eyes are not fully opened. He's still seeing things in a confused way. And we know that Peter doesn't like that, because what does he do in verse 32? He rebukes Jesus. We get more detail in Matthew's account, but basically Peter says something like, yeah, going to the cross, dying. You don't need to do that, Jesus. That's not necessary. You don't have to die. Don't worry about that. And Jesus turns to Peter and gives to Peter an admonishment that is harsher than any admonishment he's given to anybody, including the Pharisees get behind me, Satan. Peter, that is the voice of the devil speaking through you. Any denial of the need for the cross comes from the pit of hell. It's demonic. And so many people are under this understanding, I can get to heaven through my good deeds and through my efforts and for my morality and for being sincere and true to myself And all of these are ways to try to save ourselves apart from the cross. And what Jesus would say here is that if that's what you believe, you are hearing the voice of Satan himself. There is only one way for salvation to be achieved, and it is through the death of this Messiah. Look at verse 31. He says, this must happen. Look at that word. It must happen. There's no other way. Jesus has to die to pay the penalty for sins. He spoke plainly in verse 32, being as clear as he can so there be no misunderstanding that apart from the suffering and death of a savior there's no salvation, there's no forgiveness, there's no redemption and there's no hope. For Peter, the cross is unthinkable, for Jesus the cross is inevitable. It's the heart of the faith. It's what we believe. There is no Christianity apart from the cross do you have eyes to see that? And you might like the idea of Jesus as a helper, a friend, a leader or a teacher, but to be a Christian, you have to see Him as one who had to die for your sins. This is why Luther said that no man understands the Scripture unless he is acquainted with the cross. That's why J.C. Ryle said, take away the cross, and the Bible is a very dark book. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to do nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So do you see? Do you see? Do you see who Jesus is? The Christ, the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life, but also do you see what Jesus has done? That your sin was so Wicked, it required Jesus to die, but God's love is so great for you that He was willing to die. That takes spiritual eyes to see. I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it, man's means of bringing death to Jesus was God's means to bring life to the world, and man's symbol of rejecting Christ was God's symbol of forgiveness for man. It takes supernatural revelation to understand that. Friends, if you're confused by this, if you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe it's going past you, just beg God to give you eyes to see. Would you do that? You can do that right now in your chair. You can do that at home this afternoon. You can pray that through the work, or through the week. Ask God to give you eyes to see. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. Jesus promises. So for those who have ears to hear, let them hear, and for those who have eyes to see, let them see. Lord, thank You for giving us sight. Thank You, Lord, for opening eyes of the blind. Holy Spirit, I pray that You would give us further, deeper illumination into the wonder and the greatness and the majesty of the cross the good news of the gospel, a God willing to die for His enemies. Oh, Lord, we're so grateful for all that You have done us. Please, Father, sharpen our understanding and make us see completely Your goodness and love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.